HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste-is-everything-cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. And uh, today we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Alex Day. Uh, he's co-owner of a bunch of very fine drinking establishments uh, <laughs> around the country. Uh, most notably for me, at least, Death & Co., um, which opened up in the East Village, uh, God, uh, seven, eight years ago yeah coming up on eight years eight years oh my goodness uh a place that i've been many 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 times um also honeycut in la nightcap king and eddie saloon um and all in la and the rose and pink garter theater in jackson hole wyoming um also co-owner of proprietors llc uh which i just filling me in on uh, uh helps to uh to to open up a bunch of consult on bars and and kind of turn over a high quality cocktail bar to anyone who would like to uh to buy one uh, is that accurate or less? yeah great marketing material thank you <laughs> and uh and alex and i actually uh have known each other for for quite some time um back in uh senior year of college we were both kind of trudging through uh, uh well i was trudging you were you were flying easily flying through senior year uh the honors thesis class for uh, european studies and uh, sadly, I, I had no idea that uh, at the time that, that you had such a passion for the industry. Um, I like to think that hopefully we would have had a cocktail together back then. Truly. But, uh, welcome to the show. Very exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure uh, to be here. You know, usually we start off the show with the best or most interesting wine I've had in the last week. Um, but uh, this week we're going to change it up in, in honor of, of Alex. We're going to have a, uh, a, a most interesting cocktail I've had last week. And the most interesting cocktail I had in the last week was over at uh, the Franklin Mortgage and Loan Company in Philadelphia. Uh, it's very, very cool. I was just in Philadelphia. I got back late last night for the uh, Alex's Lemonade Stand event. Um, and there, at, over at Franklin Bar, they had a cocktail called the Drop Frame, which had a great uh, rum agricole, rum JM, 
uh, Bonal, which I, which I love. I use it uh, in drinks as, as often as I possibly can. A bunch of different bitters, uh, and creme de pompomousse, which is fun to say. And the cool thing about this, and what attracted me to, say, to this cocktail, is that it was served at room temperature. And it was actually a muggy day in, uh, in Philly, and I wasn't that excited of I was I wanted a refreshing drink um but they talked me to they said they have uh room temperature cocktails all year round and this is kind of a summery version of one so that was the best drink I've had uh, all week and I was sharing this with Alex before the show got started and uh two things came up number one I had no idea that you consulted on on Franklin which is super cool um and, and anyone I asked about where to drink good cocktails in Philadelphia Everyone said Franklin. They said Franklin is like the place to go for people taking it really seriously, uh, but also having some fun with it, which uh, which we definitely experienced. And then uh, number two, something that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of the of a room temperature drink. Uh, I know you travel around the country quite a bit more than I do, and go to uh, great cocktail bars in different cities. Is it something that you see that that's coming around? Because it was pretty new to me. Yeah, I think it's. Um I think it's less of a trend as though it's going to find its place on every cocktail menu in the same way that, say, you know, a daiquiri variation or an old-fashioned variation will um, because that format is so solid and so tried and true and kind of sticks in people's brains so dramatically. But, you know, the idea of temperature and what happens with aroma, you know, I'm sure you, you talk about this a lot in wine. Those ingredients you just talked about can be so aromatic and so... Um, so pungent in a lot of ways. And when you start playing with temperature and doing something closer to room temperature, when you're, you know, not deadening things down with really, really cold temperatures, you can do a lot. I mean, like pamplemousse, for example, grapefruit liqueur, like what happens when you brighten that up with uh, higher temperatures is amazing. Um, So I I certainly see it as a interesting idea. I think it's as much academic as it is practical Mm -hmm. in a bar setting, but when it's done well, it can be really cool. When it's done badly, just like any drink, it's Awful. Okay, so what are some of the parameters if you were going to approach, uh, say, one of your clients maybe said, I would love, I'm so into this uh, room temperature cocktail thing, I think it's the next big thing, and you're to say, all right, these are some rules that you need to abide by that will, that will help you successfully create delicious room temperature cocktails and then stay away from doing these things. Uh, I would say the most important one is ABV, uh, alcohol content. You know, if you're... If you're doing a room temperature cocktail, you inevitably are playing with people's senses and their ability to drink it probably quicker than they otherwise would because they're not. Uh, it's not uh, you know a cold drink that you're kind of uh, slowed down by. It's quenching. Um, room temperature cocktail is going to approach your senses a very different way. And my first instinct would to do to be to split it mostly with a base of fortified wine of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, if somebody was really, really into it, I would counsel them strongly to start out slowly uh, to do one on their menu. And in the case of the drink that you had, I would wager to say that you know the Agricole and the Bonal were working in tandem as a base on that so that you had mostly the Bonal, the Agricole bringing a lot of flavor to it. But, uh, you know, it's dangerous territory with high proof spirits and, and drinking them neat. And, and that's essentially what you're doing in a room temperature cocktail, right? You're combining things at a neat level. Yeah. But especially in the, in the context of a cocktail bar where you're hoping to serve multiple cocktails to your, to your guests, if you have a a high, a high proof, uh, cocktail, then that's something that they're going to drink super slowly. So, uh, that, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. Business sense and all that business sense (laughs) and all of that. Um, and then tell me a little bit about the process of 
how did that that work when you went down and and uh, consulted with with Franklin? Um, and was what 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 is that like? I, I didn't know that there were too many people in this country who are who are doing that. Okay. Yeah, it was right place and right time. You know, um, when we were finishing up school, um, and it was not easy for me. That was that was a, a gnarly seminar <laughs> that we were doing. Um, I you know looked around and. And was looking at the industry and loved what I was doing. I loved bartending and Death and Go open at the same time, so I like dove right into it. Um, I became a partner there about three years ago. But the owner of that congratulations play, on that. Thank like, you very much. It's you know the bar that changed my life. So to be a partner there is unreal. It's funny. I always assumed going in that that you had some sort of ownership because you felt like it felt like that was your spot. Like you took ownership over it. Everyone everyone knew you, so it, it makes total sense. And and I love to hear that as well. That that. Uh, you worked there for six years. Um, they recognize your dedication, your hard work, and uh, and you're rewarded. And and you guys are working on other things together. Uh, it's something that you don't see in this industry as much anymore. People staying around. Uh, you know, it, there aren't like, too many Derek Jeters anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice reference. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> retiring, yeah. And so. yeah. There's there's that. <laughs> yeah. You know, loyalty is a powerful thing, and I think one of the things that has made Death and Co so special is that the people that have worked there throughout the years, and I think I'm included in that, have made the bar part of our DNA. And so, you know, one a person who was working there at the time can't be spoken in a sentence without referencing that bar, which makes it so special. You go in there and you feel the people. And we've always, you know, from an employee side of things, we always felt that we were motivated to be that, to make the bar ours, to have Death & Co. not be about the owners, but about the bartenders there. And, and then of course that was rewarded for me in working there for a long time and developing my business partnership with Dave Kaplan, who is the primary owner of Death & Co. And he and I own a bunch of other stuff together. And uh, I think that sentiment has really like set the foundation for our entire business. Like the Franklin, for example, down in Philly, you know, they called us shortly after Dave and I decided to start, you know, working with other people. Um, you know, I was after college working in cocktail bars that didn't make me very much money. So I started consulting on the side, just picking up, you know, doing a menu for Alan and Delancey, for example, when that existed, um, a couple of other things. And the, these people from Philly called us. They love Death & Co. They're like, we really want to do something down here. Can you help us? And we put together a team to do all the architecture, the design, setup. And then I went down there and trained the staff and kind of bounced back and forth between here and there for a long time. And I think set the foundation there for exactly that sentiment of Death & Co. where, like, the staff owns the place and feels like they're involved in it. And you feel that, I hope, still to this day because – the crew there is unreal. They're so talented. Oh, we had such a great time. Sat at sat at the bar. We, we were gonna get there like right when they opened. And like, all right, let's take a walk around the block and like <laughs> give them a second, <laughs> as I can uh, you know relate to that uh, that feeling of someone walking right when the door opens and love having your, your first guest. But like, let's let's give them a few minutes. Anyway, we got there. Everyone was super nice, uh, and the, the cocktail was was really interesting and delicious. Um, which, which is, uh, which is very cool. Um, so if you had a, an endless budget, uh, these, these kind of, uh, I know when you work with your own businesses and you're consulting, you got, you guys have to work with some sort of budget. These are, these are real businesses, but what is one piece of cocktail equipment or, or design that you're like, wow, if, if we can go, you know, balls to the wall, do whatever, like what, what would you do? Oh, you are going down a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> you know, as you know, restaurants and bars exist on such tight margins that sometimes it's really difficult to 
to justify some of these expensive toys that you really love. But I had the opportunity in L.A. to really start diving into some more advanced equipment and basically biting Dave Arnold's style as, as a colleague in this radio station here pretty much as, as much as I possibly can and buying a centrifuge a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, because we have an extensive tap cocktail program at, at Honeycut, clarifying juice, you know, carbonating things. It was awesome. But I recently convinced my partners in L.A. to uh, allow me to buy a Rotovap um, which uh, I don't know if you know much about rotary evaporators, but uh, it's pretty fucking cool. Please, uh, please inform us. What, what, what's a rotary evaporator? Well, it's basically a still uh, at its base. Uh, We're uh, distilling something, um, but it's the entire process is captured within a vacuum chamber. Mm. Um, so you're lowering temperature um, a bit, but mostly you're changing pressure. So. You know, if you boil a pot of water on top of a stove, you're at atmospheric pressure where we all exist and we kind of swim around in, you know, the environment around us. Um, water boils at a certain point based upon temperature and pressure. So if you change the pressure, you can boil at a lower point. What happens to aroma and flavor when you apply heat? Well, it changes. So if you're able to capture aroma and flavor of an ingredient, say something as delicate as basil leaves, um, into, say, something as delicious as gin, um, and you're able to distill that at a low proof, well, you get this incredibly beautiful aromatic flavor out of it that is so uh, almost romantic how like special it is using this laboratory tool. Um, I'm really excited about that, though, um, n- to officially say that I don't actually distill anything with alcohol because that's illegal. So, yes, of course. No, no, nothing, no, no. ever. Uh, if in a hypothetical, if you were to uh, make a basil gin, like, what, what application would you, uh, would you use that? Uh, it would come out the other end pretty high proof. I'd uh, mm. probably... You know, add some water content just like any distillate to it and maybe use that as a modifier, maybe use it base, maybe use an aromatic on top of a cocktail. I just got the thing, so I'm playing around with it. The grossest thing so far is toasted coconut cognac, which tastes like sunscreen. <laughs> it but sounded delicious at the beginning. I, I yeah. can see why you might go down that. Uh. Oh, I tried to justify everyone in the office saying, oh, this is so cool, so cool. And my colleague out in L.A., Devin Tarby, who has a much pal- better palate than I do, was like, no, this no, this is sunscreen. It's gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you have those specific, uh, yeah, sunscreen's just gross. You, know, yeah. you don't want to eat sunscreen. Yeah, it's, it's too attached to memory. Uh, and. <laughs> And about the uh, the immersion circulator, mm-hmm. you're, re- you're really getting into that as well, huh? Yeah, yeah. And is that specifically for tap programs, or can you does it have other applications? Uh, I use a circulator for almost all of our syrups. Um, so controlling heat, especially with like fruit syrups, something like raspberry as yeah. an example. Uh, very low temperature, around 135 degrees Fahrenheit. Extracting into a sugar solution, you know, sugar. You can get like beautiful color and great flavor and not that cooked fruit roll-up thing that you would often get. But also, more interestingly, is with infusions. Um, you know, Alcohol mm. starts boiling off at 174 degrees Fahrenheit um, at sea level. So when you apply heat to any booze in order to extract flavor, stuff starts changing. It becomes you know, less of the original alcohol. So trapping your liquid into some sort of container, putting ingredient in there and cooking it at, at a lower temperature below the point at which it's going to boil off has really kind of changed how we've approached infusions and you know syrups for that matter are they more shelf stable as well i feel like they would be uh yeah i mean you're you're still into generally speaking a high proof right spirit so stability is pretty pretty good pretty good and then if you want to get real geeky you can run it you know afterwards through a centrifuge to get out any particles of anything which why not? If you have it, do you have to wear a lab coat when you're doing? <laughs> I don't think so, but I think glasses are required. Glasses are required. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. Even that... if they're non-prescription. How did you? <laughs> so, uh, 
were you always so interested in the 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 also not only I know you're very interested in the, in the service and history of cocktails and I don't want to talk with you about that but some of these more technical questions um, which clearly you know what you're talking about um, have you learned most of this on the job is there is there outside reading is it talking with people like Dave Arnold how do you how do you stay up to date with what's going on with this stuff I think the the way in which it clicked for me is I've always been uh, technically minded, I suppose. Like the Legos of life is always really fascinating to me, like how things are put together. Uh, I did horribly in science as a kid and in college for that matter. Um, not particularly engaged in it, though love the idea of it. So it's not as though like I have any background in any of it, but I think these tools and these techniques have entered our work as a response to problems that we've had. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, Honeycutt in LA, which is an incredibly high volume bar, We'll see 500 people come through in a given night. It has two different bars. It's very complicated. So we looked at that problem. We're like, how can we get drinks that are great and up to our standards out to people faster? And so we started researching cocktails on draft. And you know, from my perspective, why do something that I could do single serving? Like, why make a Negroni and then just put it in a keg and give it to somebody? Like, a Negroni is delicious, but it's also really easy to make. Like, that doesn't really take that much time. So how can we put something in a keg that is qualitatively different than what I could do single serving and therefore special and a reason to come? And so I started going down the rabbit hole of, like, what is everyone doing to to make these things special? And uh, got into clarification. And then, of course, like, how do you, you have so much more opportunity with your single ingredients to uh, make them special? And so using circulators to extract flavor in different mm-hmm. ways uh, was really just a reaction to how can we make the best possible drink? Um, and less the, oh, I want this new toy. Though that sometimes interacts with it. I mean, it makes so much sense for a high-volume place where you're trying to have top-quality cocktails as well. There's there's so much stuff that, that really does batch out well. I mean, I did, uh, for, for our event last night, I, I think we made like 600, 700 cocktails. There's no way I'm making each one of those one at a time. God, you no. have to batch it. <laughs> you know, you have to, to make big batches. And, and there's a lot of stuff that really works well. Um, but the, I guess the one thing that you generally can't put in there is citrus, right? So will you kind of add citrus? You have all your, most of your batches, you just pour over ice or do a quick stir and then. Yeah. Anything like of the sour family style. So think you're like your Tom Collins or your, uh, your daiquiri, anything involving citrus traditionally Mm -hmm. and that, that like refreshing quality. Um, we'll do two things. One, um, we'll either clarify the juice. So we'll. Uh, run uh, lime juice or lemon juice through a centrifuge and get out all the particles because once you put that in keg and try to carbonate it, um, the CO2 doesn't dissolve very well into a mixture that has any particles floating in it, right? Um, So we'll do that uh, if we're getting really fancy. Or another solution, we'll make a syrup and add a good amount of, say, citric acid to it, say pineapple. Cook some pineapple with gum arabic, a little bit of sugar, and then a good amount of uh, citric acid. And so that creates the sour balance, and it becomes more about that the expression of that beautiful pineapple than it does about pineapple and, say, lemon juice in there. So then you suddenly have something you could never make single serving. You have something that only works in the batch because it's all kind of working together. That's and the it, next level stuff. That's really cool. special. I'm really excited about it because it's a whole different approach. It's not the single serving cocktail, nor is it punch. It's like a whole different thing altogether. And then when you start tweaking on a large batch scale the formula, you start seeing that things are not there. You know, two ounces of booze, three-quarter ounce of lime juice, three-quarter ounce simple syrup, you suddenly can play with things in really nuanced, specific ways. Yeah, and it's it's strange how you can have a recipe that works uh, in a single serving, but if you 
multiply that by 10 or 100, it, it no longer works. Yeah. Uh, you need to, you really need to make adjustments at, at the larger end as well. Oh, God, yeah, especially bitters. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Any batch amount that has bitters in it, like cut it in half immediately and then taste the large batch, start adding a little bit more. It's, it's all messing around together. And then how long it sits together. Yeah, it, there's a whole science. Don Lee, you should chat with him if you don't know Don. Uh, he will talk your ear off about batching because that dude <laughs> – I mean, of Tales of the Cocktail every year, he assembles thousands and thousands and thousands of cocktails. All right. Well, we got to get Don Lee on, on this show. I've been talking with, with Joy Morales, our producer over here, and uh, he's a bartender at, at Lartuzzi as well, and we've been talking about getting Don on the show. Anyway, we're going to take a, uh, a quick break. Um, we'll be back with more of Alex Day uh, on In the Drink. Thanks a lot. Hi, I'm Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else. And we need, we need your help. Heritage Radio Network is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Michter's Whiskey is a proud sponsor of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If you drink the whiskey that warmed General Washington's troops at Valley Forge, does that make you a patriot? Not necessarily, but it indicates you appreciate that Michter's sets the standard for highest quality, limited production whiskeys. America's first whiskey distilling company, Michter's rich history dates back to 1753, when a farmer in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, distilled his first batch of whiskey from Hardy Rye. At one point, a master distiller left his family's well-known distillery to join Michter's so he could be at a smaller, less cost-conscious company where he could make the finest whiskey, cost be damned. Ask your bartender or retailer for Michter's whiskey today. Chatham Imports is the national sales agent for Michter's Distillery. For more information, please visit www.michters.com. That's www.michters.com. This is Brooks Headley, the pastry chef at Del Posto in Manhattan, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're back on In the Drink, uh, here with Alex Day. Alex, uh, we started the, the last segment with my favorite uh, cocktail that I had last week. What Have you had any really uh, special, really interesting cocktails, not at one of your many awesome places uh, uh, recently? Oh, shit. I, I don't think I'm let out very often. <laughs> uh, last time I went to a place that... Well, oh, I went to uh, Pouring Ribbons last night, um, my one time out this trip, because I'd just been working, uh, and went and visited my friend Joaquin Simo, who's, you know, we worked together at Death & Go for a long time, and went there, I haven't been in a while, and I'm a big nerd, sci-fi nerd, and there was a drink called The Speaker for the Dead, which is a Ender's Game reference for all the geeks out there. Um, it was delicious. It was uh, a Bono, Amaro Abano, which is like an awesome cinnamon bomb of a thing, uh, a little bit of lemon juice, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the base spirit, but it was stirred together with like a teaspoon of lemon juice and mint stirred into the cocktail. So you had this like, and they strained it out just like an old fashioned style drink and it had this beautiful like kind of herbal kick to it, but still a big glass of booze. Ooh, that sounds nice. awesome. Yeah, highly recommended. I love pouring ribbons. I, I also just love their, uh, their, their chartreuse program. It's just gets me so excited of course it gets you excited (laughs) 
There's not a psalm I know who isn't totally excited about that. I was that. totally enamored by it. And yeah, just uh, for you guys, and if you haven't been, they have, uh, you can order <laughs> any of uh, green or yellow and then older chartreuses, and they will also pour you the fresher one side by side. And It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Awesome. It really is. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like everyone in this industry um, who works in beverage at all goes down some sort of chartreuse. Uh, I don't know bad kick it's like a heroin habit like they're just like oh i have to have chartreuse all the time and you know it's not exactly the cheapest ingredient in the no, world good stuff's expensive it's so expensive and then tasting yeah. vintage stuff that has changed over the years so cool have you visited over there the the monks gone no. to the distillery i had the opportunity once a couple of years ago and had a picnic with uh, the two monks that make oh, up in the it was like sound of music shit it was amazing uh but got to taste some stuff that they don't really release outside of Europe and like they have a sommelier edition which is a blend of yellow and green but in certain proportions and then all this what was purported to be the way it was made back in I think 1605 it's really cool stuff that's really cool I, I pictured this uh very and I'm sure it is still a very secluded monastic life but where they're just making two products and that's all they do like, every day. But at least it sounds like they're experimenting with a couple of other things. Yeah, totally. I mean, so much of it's rooted in history. And, you know, the, the monastic life is up in the hills in this beautiful monastery surrounded by hills. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but most of the product is actually made down in Grenoble, uh, sort of like a 30-minute drive down the hill. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, they, they make a couple of things. They age it a little bit more. They kind of don't mess around with it. But they also make some really cool liqueurs and... Uh, aperitifs, something very similar to Sue's that they, is just jaw-droppingly beautiful. Did uh, <laughs> did you uh, explain uh, what your what your place is like or your places? You're like you know in the East Village in L.A. Like people like <laughs> where they an extremely different lifestyle are are really uh, freaking out over your stuff. Yeah, I don't. I, the translation didn't really work so well. Yeah, my, my French from the European Studies program not so good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you do a bunch of uh, a bunch of traveling. Um, what are some of the other places other than obviously we know about about New York, uh, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago? Like, where are some other places where you see some really great cocktails? I think it was most inspired recently by um, we helped open a bar in Moscow last year, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and about this time a year, two years ago, I went to visit Moscow to kind of explore the opportunity and check it out. Um, I was always fascinated by russia in general i was like okay i'll take a trip there that sounds great um not really expecting cocktail culture to be super uh advanced uh over there but it was very much so and some people who've done a lot of work in london uh brought over a particular aesthetic and style and some it was at that point within the cocktail culture there that sort of hub of a thought like you know here 10 years ago not 10 years ago nine eight years ago the milk and honey family was very much like a thing you know mm -hmm. you then go to those bars you understand it you go to the pegu style bars and you understand that it's like a crew of people um moscow a couple of years ago there was starting to be some people doing different things and one place that really inspired me is called uh china which um for the life of me, I can't remember what part of town it is. It's in central Moscow near a train station. But you, like, go down this back alleyway, and you go into this weird, sketchy building. And it's like you go down these set of stairs into a basement, and it's this perfect little special bar that's, like, twice as big as the room we're in right now. And one guy working behind it, and it's just so special. Like, the individuality, the personality, everything that he is interested in is coming right at you in like in vibes of hospitality and just the drinks were stellar it was dave and i my business partner were there and we're 
at this point in our careers where we have a number of businesses. I'm like, I don't know if we can ever do a bar like this again. Like, this is everything we want in a bar, mm-hmm. but it takes that time, that 12 hours every single day with complete and utter dedication and not being distracted by anything. That was super cool. Wow. You just... I, I was not expecting Moscow. To yeah. like, I thought you were going to say something completely different, like, oh, this place New Orleans or Birmingham, which keeps coming up on the show. Everyone loves Birmingham. Uh, Moscow, That's that completely blows my mind, that kind of sort of dedication, huh? Yeah, it blew my mind, too. It was uh, it was such an enlightening trip, and yeah. working over there was some of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I bet you that Putin hates craft cocktails. I, hate, I bet, you I bet he, he, hate, he does. He hates good cocktails. I bet he... Uh, the lack of being hit. Um, yeah, I bet he doesn't like having fun at all. <laughs> I, will, I will agree with that. Um, <laughs> um, I have. I, I did a little research. I found some of your other kind of favorite ingredients. Uh, apple brandy. Oh, so much. Actually, I think I have apple brandy in my bag. You just carry apple brandy around well, with you? you? I was just carrying it. Ar- I don't know where it is. Let's find it. <laughs> I'll find it eventually. I think I have some Clear Creek apple brandy here. Sorry, go on. I'll find it. Well, I was going to ask, other than, you know, we, we use the Laird's Bonded. I think mm-hmm. it's pretty solid. Yes. Uh, you just, this guy just carries apple brandy with him. I really like apple brandy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess, I guess we did some good research. Then. Uh, <laughs> you like Clear Creek? What, oh, are there some other really delicious apple brandies that, that, you're in, that you enjoy? It's not too early to drink, right? No. I don't know. There you go. Uh, We're just going to swing it out of the bottle. Yeah, that's uh, the Clear Creek uh, poem. Of eight year, I believe. Um, I am generally obsessed with apple brandy, delicious. brandy in general. But apples, I think, are particularly cool because, thank you. Uh, the, you know, the idea of terroir and uh, how that can manifest itself in spirits, I think, is really dramatic in apple brandy. Um, from the stuff that's made in Normandy uh, in the north of France to what's made in uh, used to be made in New Jersey uh, by the Laird's family. Uh, what is made in Oregon, made throughout California. There's just so many, ama- upstate New York for that matter, uh, there's so many amazing expressions of what apple can do as a distillate uh, from like really gritty, fiery American whiskey style things like Applejack to beautiful, elegant spirits. And then you know people in Oregon kind of playing around with where the middle ground is with that. It's I was going to say that's somewhere between your Normandy, like very nice Camus or Calvados and... Yeah. and- and that kind of, yeah, more fiery, rustic. That's delicious. Mm-hmm. That's and delicious. made by really nice people in Oregon, which is where I'm from. So I got to, you know, hold the Oregon flag high. Hey, that's great. That's great. And uh, they, the Clear Creek Distiller, if I'm correct, we, we just recently visited Greenhook Distillery um, in, over in Greenpoint. Mm-hmm. I think he, the, Greenpoint, the Greenhook Distiller worked at Clear Creek for like years and years and years and years. Yeah. Which you probably knew. That. Yeah, it's a <laughs> yeah. I, we've we've met a couple of times. Um, the distiller they actually just sold the distillery in Oregon to um, <laughs> this company called Hood River Distilleries. Which growing up in Oregon in the woods, like we drank their their vodka HRD vodka in a you know a plastic jug, real 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 classy kids in Central Oregon. Um, but this company just bought them. But I have reassurances by everyone at Clear Creek that the product's not going to change. Uh, last time I was there, they were pulling off uh, pears from the side of Mount Hood and letting them ripen in the distillery. So mm. I was there as these pears were ripening, and they were distilling the eau de vie right next to them, which if you've had their pear eau de vie, it's like it's my favorite spirit to start 
spirits training with because it's such a clear expression this comes from a thing a pair here's how it can be distilled let's talk about everything in between there um and it's just they just make magical stuff wow wow they make some really good uh grappas yeah quote unquote grappas but yeah some gra- you know that, obviously that's uh, with the italian restaurants that's what interests me so much yeah um uh, but they're actually delicious than the majority of it more delicious than the majority of italian grappas uh, i'm glad you said it yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's such a hard category uh and they have a good story to it like all their grappas from clear creek are essentially a way of 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 maintaining the tradition of grappa right where you use what's left over for a purpose and don't let it go to waste and you know the the distiller there sources from his favorite wineries around oregon and washington like somebody's making pinot grigio and pinot noir of course you know it's not too far from the willamette valley well i'm going to use that for my friend's winery and make a grappa out of it um and then they have all these varietals which i don't know how many we get out here in new york but they i'm sure you've tried the full line there's so many that they make like almost more than anything else that they actually sell i think just because they think it's interesting yeah and in the terms of someone who has a uh like a geeky interest in this sort of thing it's really interesting to try those single grape variety grappas yeah, uh, they're they're absolutely fascinating. So, the I think next wave of some cocktail stuff that we were talking about a lot of using more technology. You know, we we've we've caught up to everything we learned before prohibition, and now we're we're pushing we're pushing past it. Um, but something that I think that you guys have always nailed at at Death and Co. that uh, um, that I'm hoping more and more places will will do well at is the the hospitality side of the of uh, great cocktail bar. Um, I think that you guys always, it's always been a, a, a welcoming place, a warm place. It's the name seems like a little standoffish death and company. Um, uh, but everyone who's worked there really is kind of, I feel like nailed hospitality. You just have such a great group uh, of people working there. Um, do you, how do you feel that? What, what, what is, how do you nail hospitality over a bar? Well, five years ago, Let's call it five years ago, just for convenience sake. I feel like within the cocktail community, there was so much talk about, hey, remember that. Yeah, get into that. Um, there was so much talk about, hey, let's not forget that there's customers and that we're in the business of hospitality. And now, because that's been repeated ad nauseum since, there's it's almost like a boring statement. Like, yeah, duh, of course, we're, we're in the business of serving people. But I feel that the sentiment still has to be repeated over and over again, especially with new people that are getting excited about this stuff. Like, you start learning about classic cocktails and all these little things that you can put together into this magical end result, which is a cocktail that miraculously comes out the other end, and you get really stoked about it. Start learning about chartreuse, and you get really excited about it. And all you want to do is tell your guests about the 134 different herbs and botanicals that go into it even if they don't really give a shit, you know? So it's kind of like a fine line to walk in your enthusiasm and serving guests. Um, And I think what is the most important thing to uh, convey when we're bringing on new people is that while we fetishize and love the cocktail and putting out an amazing product that's creative as much as possible and executed meticulously, that at the end of the day, serving our guests and what their needs are is the most important thing. And I think that opportunity exists in the bar in in no other in as much a in the greatest potential than anywhere else in the restaurant. Which and what I mean by that is because of the informality of mm. a bar relationship, even if you're sitting at La Bernadette, like the relationship you have with the bartender is so much less formal than if you're sitting at a table. And because of that you have an opportunity to break down barriers. And you can say 
uh, hey, let's have an interaction as humans and let me find you the thing that you want. And because we're bartenders and we have all these cool ingredients at our disposal, we can find quite literally exactly the right thing and build a relationship with a guest. And hopefully that is the, at the genesis of that is hospitality and taking care of people. Great. Uh, I couldn't say, I couldn't have said it better. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's and, apple brandy and, and I think, he, uh, yeah, he buttered me up with a couple of shots of delicious, <laughs> delicious apple brandy. Uh, no, but I, I think it, I think it's a really important thing that you guys do extremely well. Um, so kudos, uh, kudos on that. Thank you. It's, it's uh, very important to us. And, you know, in the, I kind of think of, of death and company as being in the, the early, but the second wave of, of like really great cocktail bars in, in New York. And uh, you can, you might disagree with me on that, but what, what's really, uh, and it, it was one of the first to have really good food as well. Um, which I think makes a lot of sense, uh, financial financially from a business standpoint you're making people you know they'll stay if they're eating something they might stay for an extra drink um and then also uh for the people themselves if you've had four cocktails or three cocktails which are so delicious you need to have a little something in your belly otherwise you're not gonna feel, you're not you're probably not gonna feel great no it's it's amazing on i mean on the financial side of things uh we had a, a little fire in the kitchen like a year and a half ago hey, these things happen you, you know how it is um yeah sad blah 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 um but we weren't able to serve food for a few weeks and which was a great test case for what we always assume which was it isn't that our liquor sales uh you know or that our food sales necessarily make or break the restaurant but what they do is increase the overall beverage sales um, people stay for maybe one more drink if they have something to eat but again back to the second point which is you know, taking care of people and, and you know looking after their hangover the next day it's so easy in new york just to justify one or two more drinks and suddenly it's two o'clock in the morning and you've had a few and you have to get up early because we don't we don't have to like get into a car we don't you know there's there's no level of that cloud hanging over our heads where that we definitely feel in Los Angeles. Um, so having that thing to kind of soak up or at least like put a, a, a bump in the road in, in your evening to kind of slow things down a little bit is really, really beneficial. And I think, I, I think our guests react really well to it. I think so. And, too. and to caring what it is too, that it's not just like, you know, a, a shitty pretzel on a plate. It's, which sounds delicious too, but I, I love shitty pretzels, but if you're if someone's spent so much time um, selecting these really great uh, products and then so much care and effort setting up a beautiful bar and cre- creating them for you, you don't you want something a little more than a shitty pretzel on a plate. Yeah, I would hope so. All right, Alex, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that we can have you back. I feel like you have so much you have so much great information. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you'll definitely be seeing me over at Death & Co. soon. Uh, hopefully I can make it to Honeycut or Nightcap, uh, King Eddie Saloon over in L.A. But if any of you guys go there, please go and report back. I'm sure you're going to have a really good time. All right. Alex Day, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you on the show. It was an honor. Thanks for having me. And uh, <laughs> thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.